The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, now this uh, particular uh, couple of seminars here um, is first on the physician and calling. And um, I want to talk about this whole notion of, of calling in terms of these categories that they, that they set forth. Um, and I'd, I'd, I hope we'll be very free to interact here. Um, I'm sorry Laura isn't here, maybe she'll be coming later because I was going to count on her to uh, give us some inside things on, on, on all this. But um, anyway, um, the, uh, I think this book quite rightly put in a fairly extensive chapter on the character of medicine. Um, I think it's not any longer possible simply to assume that, you know, the doctor is a male wearing a white coat or um, that he is your family doctor and you know sees you from birth uh, to death and um, and so forth it just isn't anymore very 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 um, common very widespread um, though when, when Barb and I were first married we, we had a classic family doctor she lives lived in a little village up in northern Connecticut and um, you know, he'd taken care of her grandmother and her mother, and and uh, knew her, and, and and so on. But that was that was a dying breed. The person when he retired, the person who replaced him uh, primarily worked in the hospital, specialized in a couple of things, wouldn't see patients just for sore throats, and you know, made a big stir in the community. And so it's all it's it's a uh, it's a new uh, it's a, it's a new world, and it does raise. Um, I think a number of ethical issues. It's not simply a sociological description of what doctors do these days, but it does raise um, ethical issues. And um, um, one of them, of course, is what it means to be a practitioner. What is medical practice, and who are the players involved? Now, Bauma uh, and company begin with a rather difficult definition of practice taken from Alastair McIntyre. If you don't know McIntyre, um, he is a very, very prominent force in modern um, ethical theory. Um, he is one of a number of people who have tried to revitalize Aristotelian virtue in a modern context and to get away from the prevailing um, relativism and um, secularism. And um, so people often look to him because he's, he stands for virtue and communitarian ethics and a number of other things. And he's also been instrumental in suggesting that ethics not simply be a set of principles or norms that are elaborated and applied to every case, but involve what he calls the story. Each person has a story, and um, 
each ethical system, whether it be the Christian system or, some, or Kantian or whatever, more or less tells a story. And um, there are a lot of problems with this, but there are some interesting aspects to it as well. Um, it's often been called the narrative approach to ethics. And you probably picked up that these authors are quite interested in this narrative approach. I mean, they, they talk about the Christian story and they talk about the story of individual patients and, and story of tragedy and so on. So that, that also comes from McIntyre and, and uh, they begin with this, this uh, somewhat awkward definition of practice, uh, but let me, um, let me just say, read, read it uh, for you again, page 102, and, and then let's look and see what we think it, it involves. Um, by practice I mean any coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity through which goods internal to that form of activity are realized in the course of trying to achieve those standards of excellence which are appropriate to and partially definitive of that form of human activity with the result that human powers to achieve excellence and human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. And you can see he's not going to you know, get the movie rights on this and, and have a lot of bestsellers. Um, th there are basically two components to it um, in, in the way that Bauma and, and uh, company have, have um, developed this. And the first is, uh, oh good, I was just saying I was hoping you were coming because we, we're going to have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> we, need, we need your resources. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, first is that medicine is a human activity. That's, this is something that um, comes out of the definition of cooperative human activity. Um, and um, you know, obviously, what activity isn't? Well, I mean, animal activity isn't human activity. But, but the, their point here is that um, medicine is not simply uh, an engineering feat. Um, it is, uh, as they say, as much an art as a science. And there is uh, a lot of room for the human component still uh, left, despite the in increasing um, t technological dimension that you see in, in modern, um, in modern uh, medicine. And one of their reasons for saying this is obviously that there's a huge place for human care in, um, in a cold and impersonal world, and that's a biblical, uh, a, bi a biblical thing. The other reason is to say that it is a limited art. Now here, um, I would hardly be the person to expound on this, but they um, insist a great deal on the theme of the, the, the limitation the, uh, um, the fact that, first of all, um, there is a fallibility built into medical practice, as there is in, in every practice. I mean, there isn't any practice that doesn't, doesn't have that. Um, and decisions may be wrong in the light of medical knowledge. Mistakes may be made. Um, they say this for a number of reasons. Obviously, theological reasons oblige you to say a thing like that. But another reason is that there is a model of the doctor as high priest 
in control of technological mysteries uh, that bring a kind of health salvation, which they, of course, believe is, is not only wrong, but needs to be uh, attacked. And um, this is difficult to do in the modern setting because, as they point out, um, the doctor is in an ambiguous role, or ambivalent role, maybe, because as high priest of, of technological salvation, some people rely on them to do everything. You know, oh, the doctor will know, and so on. Then, when the doctor doesn't know, there's only one enemy in the whole world, it's doctors. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but uh, because Lawyers are also enemies, and, and other enemies are around. But um, it, it's a bit like some of the uh, two-thirds world countries that rely on an authority figure, a dictator. You know, he's, he saves them, then when he doesn't, he is the, the public enemy, number one. And so they're saying here that um, medicine is, is limited, and there can be mistakes. Now, one thing that they didn't mention a lot, which I was sort of surprised at, they, they, they allude to it briefly in the personal thing, um, is the uh, increasing um, tendency towards uh, malpractice suits. Um, now, Barb and I lived in France for many, many years, and um, over there, you don't sue doctors. It's just something you don't do. I mean, a, occasionally, a surgeon who you know is a, is a quack and you know, does something really awful will be taken to task by some public prosecutor, but. It's not in the culture, the mentality is not in the culture to, uh, to try to seek gain um, with, with malpractice suits. Whereas when we came back here, we realized that we're in a kind of suit-minded uh, country in a lot of ways. And um, the people do it for various reasons. Obviously, the best, most noble reasons are injustice has been done and they need restoration. But a lot of times it's for gain or for uh, this awful idea that you can solve all your problems by civil procedure. And um, I know this has been a tremendous burden on the medical profession. Uh, and it's driven prices up, obviously, because insurance companies won't just take you on the way they used to without a huge malpractice uh, aspect. Um, I've been having some dental surgery done recently and um, I have this wonderful dentist and uh, who I would assume trusts me and I trust him and everything's just fine and before I had one my, of my operations I had to sign um, a three-page document which basically said I understand that despite the best use of technology and so forth and so on, this thing may not work. There is a such and such percent success rate, and you know, I mean, I just had to look at, I had to read the document before I went under. I had to uh, sign it, and uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. I was, in fact, innocent me, it, it alerted me a lot more to all the things I could do to this man than if I had never uh, signed it, you know. I, uh, so, and, I, and also these, these sort of documents are of, are of only minor legal clout um, because if you get a good uh, lawyer, he, that, that, that lawyer can, can 
get it proved that you did this under pressure, you know, you weren't feeling good and you had Novocaine all over you and you didn't know what you were doing, you know. So, anyway, um, so many disclaimers have to be made, so much protection. Um, and this has, this has, you know, really, I think, created a, a big problem for um, the, not only the medical profession, but for the patient as well. Um, I think medis, medical people have been perhaps unduly uh, made um, less than confident about what they do. Um, I mean, this is, of course, a, a redress of, of an imbalance in the, perhaps in the 50s and 60s, where the doctor could do everything and was overconfident and used technology and played out his fantasies. But the, it, it's perhaps a, um, the reverse problem we're now, the reverse extreme we're in, which is um, that, that the doctor will, will feel that there's always got to be a second, third, fourth opinion. I'll send you to this person to just check and have a, have a special test done and, and, and so on. And uh, that's kind of too bad, I think. Um, and I realize that things aren't, aren't that simple. So, first point he makes, or they make, Bauma et al., is that um, this is a practice, it's human and it's limited. Um, things can go wrong. Um, any, anybody like to make a comment? Is their is there sentence here a fair one? There's some evidence that the medical profession itself fosters an unjustified sense of medical infallibility. Um, okay, the other uh, side to the profession here is this thing in, in McIntyre's definition of the internal good. All right, um, after this long sentence, he goes and says, um, this um, is, a, is trying to achieve um, excellence and so forth, um, the goods involved, and um, that this is a, um, an activity through which goods internal to that form are realized. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, it means, of course, you've got to decide what, you, what your, your particular bent is. Bauma and, and company suggest that um, the primary goal could be simply the happiness of the people involved or relieving suffering and fighting disease or preventing suffering and disease and and uh, there are a good many um, different uh, goods that could be um, that could be that could be discussed um, I guess they basically favor the idea that medical practice um, is seeking the good called health. Um, what is health according to their definition? What is health according to this, uh, uh, this, this concept? What, wh where do they get their idea of health from and do we agree with it? Does anybody recall? It was actually in a previous reading that, we, that was mostly covered. Well, how would you define health, even without the, their help? Right, that's one important thing, is functioning well, not necessarily um, thinking that all is well, or the thinking that you're sick when you might not be. They, they have quite a bit of um, polemic against that. Um, 
what, it, what is it to be healthy uh, according to a Christian view? Um, well, they, they talk about the well-functioning organism um, and that this is totally interrelated with um, psychological, emotional, and other kinds of well-being as well as physical. Um, and um, I guess they um, mention the various components of, um, of health um, and always in such a way as not to have it um, give you a false ideal. Um, for example, they spend quite a bit of time talking about lifespan. And this is a, uh, another uh, large preoccupation in our, in our culture. Um, you could obviously, from television ads and all kinds of parts of our, of our popular culture, get the impression that health means long life, or maybe never dying. <laughs> um, and, I mean, look at the ads for um, almost everything uh, except, well, no, I was going to say except insurance, but even that's not true. The, the people, the subjects, the agents, the people represented who do the ads are, are always, you know, some, something from 15, <coughs> 15 to 30. You know, these are young people and they look well, they're happy, everything's going for them. Um, and even when it's uh, an ad for, um, you know, like health uh, insurance or, 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 or something that you, a retirement home or something, the people they pick, yeah, right, you're right. I mean, they're always pretty healthy looking, and I, and I, in reality, when you, you know, ordinary human beings are just not, not always that healthy. And um, so the definition would have to include those um, disclaimers or limitations which have to do with our condition um, as fallen persons. Um, well-functioning rather than well-being they choose because um, you know, on your deathbed, your 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 being um, may not be good in the in the ultimate sense, but it's functioning appropriately to the particular state that you're meant to be in. Um, so, the, and they have a lot of comments about um, um, health for the elderly, health for people with disabilities, um, and, um, and and so on. So, health is is well functioning. In terms of what you're what you're meant to be, and um, that uh, is, I think, an important part of their definition of practice because it it avoids um, false expectations. Now, I would like to know what some of you think about the distinction they made between disease and illness. This is a uh, this is the reverse of health, of course, and. Um, they, um, they, they talk about health as being relative because you have disease and you have illness. Now, illness, I mean disease rather, um, is what they call anatomic or physiologic or biochemical malfunctioning or measurable malfunctioning, whereas illness, in their view, is um, psychosocial perception. Gets back to what you were saying, of being unwell. It's the subjective side. Um, the sick role and so on. Um, is this a valid distinction? Does this fit 
reality? No. Mm -hmm. Problem. What's the problem with it? Okay, so that's one reason it's inadequate is that it, it asks you to separate things that often go together in reality. And in terms of their own definition of practice, um, you would want uh, the physician to be able to deal with illness. The, actually, the word, I don't know why they chose that word because unless things have changed a lot, to me, um, you know, my parents used to talk about being ill as opposed to being sick, and they meant, you know, um, a physical thing. Um, so I don't know why they chose that particular word. Their, um, their point, of course, is that illness is the thing that makes the patient come to the physician, as it were, um, and the disease is the thing that the physician has to look out for. And I suppose um, that is a useful distinction if all you're trying to do is discern the real problems as opposed to the presentation problems, you know. I mean, like in counseling, we talk about presentation problems and real problems. Although presentation problems can and often are real, you know, can be. Um, you know, somebody comes in and says, I'm depressed. Um, you don't just sort of think, well, that, you know, they, they think they're depressed, but really what's going on is, you know, something. Uh, you think, well, that person is depressed, but there are probably things that lie, lie behind it. Um, and so you try to look at both. Um, the, uh, the authors here comment that physicians are trained only to deal with disease, not illness. Is that true? Yeah, and, and my impression is that you do hear about that in, in, in your training, though it's never enough, I suppose. Um, but um, they have a kind of um, bugaboo, this, these authors. They're, they're kind of very uh, leery of the autonomy or arrogance of using technology and, uh, and, and so forth. And, and I think perhaps they've, they've overreacted to a, a, um, an abuse that's, of course, perfectly real, but um, it's... Um, I, I'm not, you, you wonder, I mean, some of these people are, doc you can't just say these are theologians who, who look at the doctors and, and have ideas, because some of them are doctors. You know. well, one doctor, though, is pediatrician. Another one of their concerns is um, the whole uh, thing of, of um, preventative medicine and um, total health care, which I, I think we all would, would certainly agree with. Um, and so they don't want to uh, reduce the doctor's role uh, to just some technical thing, and then then it's it's finished. Um, so um, the you know the point is okay, but anyway, I, th I found that a an odd um, distinction. Um, okay, so medicine as a practice. Anybody have anything else want to say about that? We're going to get into the profession in a minute, and that has more fodder for discussion. But anybody want to make a comment? All right. Um, all right, medicine as a profession. Now, this is a really interesting and important consideration um, because um, we have the professionalization of all kinds of callings in the modern world. Um, and obviously, uh, when I read some of this, I think by analogy of, of the uh, profession of pastor, um, 
the minister, and uh, it's, there are a lot of parallels. And I suppose if you were a lawyer, you would say the same thing and, and, and so on. Um, the elements that m make up a profession is basically that you take this internal good of McIntyre's practice and you um, legitimize it often with something to do with money. I think that's what, um, what, it, what it boils down to. Um, so that you have um, the need to look at uh, medicine as a practice which is involved with um, charging, with licensing organizations, with um, purchasing equipment, with reviews that uh, publish findings and, and, and so forth. And I think basically what they are, um, what they're saying here is that um, we, we're dealing with a profession um, as a as a as a money um, implied uh, calling. Now, there's there's a lot more than that, but there is at least that. And I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that, um, in in my limited experience with with medicine, because I've been on a well, I've been a patient, but I've been also on some medical ethics committees. Um, it, it is indeed true that you can no longer be the quiet, wise family physician um, who takes care of your grandmother and your mother and your, yourself and, and knows you and so forth. I don't say you can't because actually in some of the places outside of these great urban centers, there is a revival of the, of the rural um, family doctor, but it, even that is not quite the same as, I mean, the doctor that I grew up with um, when I was a kid was um, this family doctor had been there for generations, his family had been there for generations, and he not only undercharged and sometimes forgot to charge, but you could call him any time and he would come. And you could, I mean, it could be for, for nothing, and, and, and he would be there. And um, he had, a, uh, his office was his home, a couple of rooms off on the side. And um, he was also the local school doctor because he was the doctor. So once a year, um, he would come and give everybody a, a medical exam. And um, if you weren't up to date on your shots, he would give you the shots. Uh, he eventually got a nurse to work with him, but for a long time he worked without a nurse. I mean, this was just the, the, the typical family doctor. So when, when he retired, uh, the community realized that, that he, couldn't have, he didn't have enough money to retire. This sounds like an odd thing about a doctor, you know. Uh, but because they figured out that having not charged people enough and so on, so they, they collected money and gave him a huge money gift. And he was able to, uh, you know, retire on that. So and this, this uh, is, is, a, is a completely um, changed thing now. Um, we have the, uh, the, the market model. You have the educational necessity that goes with that, with that market. And... Um, and it, it brings advantages and disadvantages. Um, obviously, the, uh, the advantages are that um, doctors can live a more sane life, at least in theory. You know, you can, they can be in a group, and they can have a day off, and they, can, they don't have to be on duty all the time and, and, and you know, 
have their family interrupted all the time, though, you know, still that happens a lot. Um, also, there's a lot more protection. Um, you know, we talked about malpractices, but the, the advantage of, of this uh, professionalization is that there's a lot of shared wisdom on how to be protected, the best kind of insurance, the best kind of, of, um, of way to deal with a patient, you know, and so on. And then um, another aspect, which is one that interests me a lot, is that because it's a profession, it has an educational implication. Um, and a lot of what we do at Chestnut Hill Hospital uh, Medical Ethics is, um, is try to educate the public. Now our public is a rather limited one, which is um, A, people on the list as patients or whatever, and B, Chestnut Hill. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, we do quite a lot to try and get the wisdom of this group known to people. And I'll just give you an example. The other day, we were, um, we were talking about um, the, the new law which requires of every state to inform patients of their rights. And we're going to talk about this in detail in a, couple, in a few weeks. But um, this means that all the hospitals and all the uh, healthcare uh, institutions are gearing up for trying to figure out how they're going to implement the, um, the law that says patients need to know. And um, it's pretty loose, so you can do almost anything you want, but you have to tell the patient something. And um, Chestnut Hill Hospital has been on the forefront of telling patients their rights for quite a while. Um, and one of the things that they've done is they've created a booklet which elaborates different patient rights uh, and focuses a lot on the, uh, the so-called living will aspect, that if you are um, reduced to a state where the only way to keep you alive is artificial feeding or ventilator or whatever, do you wish this to happen? And um, it's, it's a very controversial subject. We, we won't go into it right now. But what is curious is that while I'm pretty aware of this because I've, I've worked on this for a long time, a lot, most the average person has no idea about all this stuff. And so the hospital has to just work overtime to just tell patients, you know, that you don't, you, you have the, a right to um, not have this happen to you. And you, um, do you know what might happen to you because of the way things are going and so on? They, they just don't. And um, of course, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of them is avoidance. You know, we don't want to face grave illness or death. Um, I mean, d death is something that happens to other people. Um, and um, so bringing this up puts you face to face with that awful thing of, of death. Um, and um, surprisingly enough, old people, though they know increasingly that they're, they're going to die, they also have all kinds of ways of avoiding the subject. Um, it's, uh, it's a, I suppose, a natural reflex. So part of the reason uh, for this, this education is, is, is resistance, and part of it is just that um, there are so much technical um, avail aspects to, to, to modern medicine that you need to inform patients uh, and people in the community at large just about what's available 
um, way beyond the question of living will, you know, what, what, what do they need to do? What can be done? Um, and also, our particular medical ethics committee, I think, has a, has a thing against the media. Uh, perhaps I think it exaggerates, uh, though the media um, has its own problems. But um, indeed, you need to do counter um, publicity sometimes um, uh, to, against what's, what's being said. You know, f for example, um, many television programs will uh, give you this uh, dramatic recital of something that happened to a totally ex exceptional case. Um, it might be, you know, the, uh, the Karen Ann Quinlan thing or the, or the Cruzan or, 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 or it might be some, other, some person who was a victim of, of, of somebody's malevolence. And um, will we'll bring to the audience uh, the idea that unless you think about these things, this could happen to you. Well, theoretically it could, but in, in, in it's, it's totally uh, improbable. And um, one of the uh, documents we worked on recently came out of an article in the New, New England Journal of Medicine where it was suggesting that patients should have a very elaborate right to choose what happens to them when they, when they, when they die. And it had, I'll, sh I'll bring this in to you because it's absolutely fascinating. It has about 30 categories, you know. If I, uh, I am to be on a ventilator, you know, how many days should I be on it um, <coughs> before I determine that, you know, I, I don't need this anymore? And if the intravenous feeding uh, doesn't work, um, should I, I mean, it's, it's like a puzzle. Go, you know, from A to, to, to plan Z unless you're left-handed and, and, and need a, uh, well, the, um, and, and, and our group, I think, rightly says, patients don't, how do they know? Um, I mean, there's so many, no case fits these categories. They're, they're all gray, you know, there's a lot of gray areas. Um, and the other side is, yes, but they need to know something about it so they can make some intelligent decision about ultimate issues. So the educational process is a very important part of, um, of medicine as a profession. And I think to that extent, these authors, um, to the extent that they, they say that, these, author, these authors are, uh, are doing a good thing. So medicine as a, as a profession, with its money, with its n need for, for um, interacting with patients, with, for education, medicine, um, because um, its own educational requirements, um, of course, become higher and higher. I mean, medical school costs are higher and higher. And um, there's, there's an industry, of course. Um, and that industry has to be um, controlled, but it also has to be um, fed with uh, what the needs are and, and so on. So this is a very important aspect of, medical, um, of the medical profession and, and, and it calls for all kinds of ethical um, decisions. Anybody want to comment on the professional side of things? Well, Bill, how yeah. does insurance inform the medical profession? Well, a lot because, um, first of all, one, and we'll get to this in a, in a bit, um, one, of the, um, one of the problems with um, the increasing costs of, of uh, medical care is that pe ordinary people with an ordinary income can't afford 
simply to pay for their bills. So you get medical insurance, which is meant to cover por portions of it. And then knowing that there's medical insurance, the uh, pharmaceutical industry and, 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 and med medicine itself um, has to add that into the mix when they charge. Um, plus, the malpractice culture means that some of the fee has nothing to do with the actual office visit or the care, uh, but with circumstances and, um, you know, hypothetical uh, things. So, um, medical insurance um, itself has become a huge problem because they can't just go on um, raising their premiums, you know, forever, or people won't be able to to, to, to do that. Um, so there has to be a an increasing uh, give and take between the the patient, the government, insurance, and and the doctors. Um, so that some sort of equitable system is worked out. And, you know, you can debate um, whether national health care is a, is, a, is, a, is a good thing. Um, it, in, the Canadian model is one, the English model is another. Um, some of the f uh, European countries, the continental countries, have a kind of a mixture between national care and social security and, and, and insurance. Um, in France, where we lived, um, the uh, the doctor could charge anything he or she wanted, but the um, uh, national health, which was through the social security system, would only reimburse um, an amount that was set by a schedule. And um, so people, I mean, doctors knew that. And so let's say an office visit was reimbursed for $40. If they charge 50, um, then the risk is that the patient might go see someone else. But if the, if the person's good enough, the patient will, will cover the cost. So, I mean, medical insurance is a, is, um, is, is a, is a huge and, and complex issue. Um, I uh, was just uh, reading today, we, with, in the uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, we have an um, insurance annuities and relief plan. And... Um, the lead article in um, the latest issue of Benefit Bulletin um, is the unrelenting health care crunch. And uh, let me read you a couple of things here which I think might uh, deal with your, 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 your preoccupation. Um, first of all, it says that it's a difficulty for churches and denominations um, because uh, it's difficult to know how to contain the costs, and ministers aren't paid very much, so you've got an added problem there. Um, in America today, nearly one in eight persons is excluded from any health care system, private or public. Uh, the cost of health insurance is so prohibitive that they nor their employers can afford to pay for it. Um, America's, Americans spend more than $600 billion per year in health care. That translates $2,424 a year for every woman, man, and child. Um, health care now absorbs 
of the American GNP and is expected to absorb 15% by the year 2000. Defense is a mere 7%. Um, according to A. Foster Higgins, um, who, uh, which does an annual health cost survey, uh, corporate medical bills uh, rose an average of 21.6% in 1990 um, after a 20.4% jump in 1989. Um, if the costs continue to rise at this rate, the annual expenditures per person would rise to $17,000 a year by the year 2000. Now, um, of course, they point out a number of things here. Um, the, 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 the apparent beneficiary of the increased cost, which is the health care industry, is, um, is not benefiting. It's suffering um, a great deal and faces a very bleak future. How is this possible? Well, 10% um, of all hospital beds have been eliminated in the last seven years, while the occupancy rate um, of hospitals has, um, uh, has fallen to uh, 30%. And um, 88 hospitals closed their doors in, in 1989 in America, and, it's, uh, and yet um, people are increasingly in need of hospital care and of surgeons. Um, medical, Medicare uh, has changed the way it pays for medical care, um, while technological advances have replaced many surgical techniques and so reducing the length of hospital stays. As a result, the demand for health services has fallen short of the abundance of services available. Um, and you would think that this would mean lower prices. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that the consumer is simply going to look for uh, uh, low-cost producers. But in fact, exactly the opposite happens. Um, in the healthcare industry, um, at a time of an oversupply of medical services, hospitals and physicians have been able to increase prices to maintain their, their profit levels, but also to maintain their research and care levels. It's a, it's a kind of um, macabre thing. You, 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 I suppose it's true in any profession, you're doomed uh, to succeed. Um, the better you do it, uh, the less likely you are to reduce the costs, and the more you have to keep succeeding in order to ensure success. Um, and not only that, but they found that uh, at least Americans don't seem to be willing to shop around for lower prices or alternative services. Um, we want the best, the newest, the most efficient, uh, and um, we, uh, we go to the doctor's office for the slightest thing. Um, and uh, we've developed an attitude, and they quote um, one of their surveys that, that says, go ahead and see the doctor, insurance will pay for it. Um, we forget that the insurance company will even eventually send us the bill in the form of a, of a higher premium. Um, everybody knows that with automobile insurance, you know, you have an accident and uh, it covers a lot of it and then your premium is hiked and you think, well, what's the point of insurance, you know? But, um, uh, 
So this indeed is a uh, is a is a is a huge um, area of of uh, preoccupation, and um, it's one that you know medical ethics uh, has every right to to consider. Um, and there aren't any there aren't too many simple solutions. Um, they suggest they have a couple of suggestions. I mean, they they say, for example, that patients ought to use the marketing techniques a little more than they do. Um, if a doctor says, here's what I charge, they ought to look and see if somebody will charge less. Um, I know that's awkward because you, you think of going to a doctor as, as something that's uh, going to a kind of, um, well, a quote priest, you know, you wouldn't sort of go to your priest for counseling and then if, if the priest charge such and such as, well, I, I'm going to trade you in for somebody who's cheaper, you know. I mean, uh, but that's, they suggest that. They also, of course, they suggest not using the doctor all the time. Um, they um, they uh, also um, suggest that you pr carefully price your medicines um, and see if uh, uh, that can be uh, a, a way of, of bringing things down. Um, but I think there are a lot of other ways you can do it, and eventually I think Christians will probably have to get involved in, in legislation. Yeah? Um, I mean, part of the professionalization is the research angle, and um, some of the research is impossible to do with the ordinary means, so that the government has to step in, and, and, or large foundations. And uh, that changes the economics of it, to be sure. Um, and um, this is more complicated because it's impossible in today's market, nor is it desirable, to ignore the international dimension of medical um, realities. Because increasingly, the role of the prosperous countries is to relate and care for the less prosperous countries. And this includes um, health. So not only how do you do advanced research to get the best and how do you charge for that, but how do you distribute the care both to your own and to the increasing third world or two-thirds world um, um, societies. Um, and so um, you've got, uh, you know, one of the demands on, on so many medical people is to think more and more of relief work or of um, international work and so forth. I recently met a f an old friend of mine. I was up visiting our daughter at, at Harvard and um, in the same hotel was a guy I used to know who's, who's a neurosurgeon now in New York. And um, I was asking him, you know, how it was going. We were both in midlife and he said, well, you know, I used to just spend all my time with one or two patients and doing very, very delicate operations and so forth. I now give about half of my time to a couple of organizations that transmit knowledge as well as technology uh, to the two-thirds world. And I travel all over the world and I, um, I feel much better about what I'm doing. Um, so uh, this particular professionalization meant for him, for this particular doctor, that he was um, trying to expand his, quote, market um, to uh, to other horizons, and this fellow was a Christian, so I mean he had a lot of reasons for doing that. Um, but it's really intriguing to to see how it how it can uh, 
how that can go. All right.